Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh22. We've got three hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, weekly since 1994. Gary. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of macmost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. I also make mobile games that you can find at clevermedia.com. And I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo in askleo.com, where I help you use your technology more confidently. So, Randy, what you been yes. up to this week? Well, I jumped back into the Apple ecosystem a little bit. I back, got you a, were there before. Well, back in the old days when I worked at uh, Jet Propulsion Lab, I had both a Mac and a Windows machine on my desk. And, you know, I've had iPods and things like that, but uh, this is my first iPad. So... That way I can, you know, fiddle around in, in that ecosystem a little bit. And and it's that new uh, iPad, the new standard iPad that they just came out with, correct? Yeah, the 9.2 inch, I think it is. And um, the support that, you know, new for this size or for, for not have, being the iPad Pro, it mm-hmm. supports the pencil. And that uh, that threw me over the edge, even though it's a $99 stick. So what do you think? Have you used the pencil yet? Have you? Have I have. You? I've been playing with it. I haven't really done anything serious with it yet because uh, I just got it. But it's it's fun, and apparently I can you know even connect it up with my uh, Direct TV account and watch TV over it if I really want to. Yeah, that's right. I do that occasionally. It's interesting. The thing that has stopped me from from investing in iPads or even iPhones for that matter is that I'm so invested in the Android ecosystem. If I want a tablet, and I every once in a while think that I do, um, I'd want to be able to not have to repurchase a bunch of apps that I already own in the Android system. So, because hmm. everything you like, you know, the same as with Apple on your on your on your you know computers. If you buy it once, it's available for all the computers associated with your Apple account. The same is true for the, uh, the apps you purchase uh, under Android. They're all associated with your, uh, your Google account. And uh, I'm not sure I want to rebuy everything on top of buying a different, you know. Well, I probably won't be buying things that duplicate. Um, you know, I, I can get the, uh, like the PDF program that I can modify or, or uh, annotate PDFs with the pencil and things like that. I don't think any of those cost anything and things that I probably would buy probably aren't available on the Android side or at least not in the same way that, cause, you know, if I already have it, I probably won't quote unquote need it on the iOS pad, but we'll see. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's I'll a lot, look. it's a lot easier. I think if to be in the Google ecosystem and have like one Apple device than the other way around. Cause if you're with iCloud and you want and you had an Android tablet or a Windows computer, you, you're stuck. It's like you, you really can't access your iCloud stuff very easily. There's ways to do it on the web and stuff, but it's not easy. On the other hand, it's easy, say, on the iPad to set up mail with your Gmail account and uh, you know, then your notes and reminders and all that stuff are part of the Gmail cloud system and um, you know, use that. And then even if you have with the Microsoft uh you know, if, you, if you've got that Microsoft subscription, they have the uh, the free app that 
then ties you into. I'm assuming you can access things like Google Drive and OneDrive Mm -hmm. and Dropbox and all of those other cloud storage services. Yeah, in in fact, I did a little research saying what's a good note-taking app to use with the pencil? And one of the top-rated apps for that is Microsoft OneNote, which I already have a subscription for, so I threw that on there. That's pretty cool. Nice. I have to try that out because I've got a subscription too since I use a Microsoft uh, Word for writing my books. Um, so I, that means I've got the subscription. I, I should just... Yeah, and you can use it on multiple platforms yeah. and, uh, and multiple people. Even you, you, know, you can give one to your daughter and one to your wife and they can all use it for my, the my same suspicion is My suspicion is that the OneNote part of that isn't really part of the subscription. You could just use it whether you have a subscription or not. That might be true. The subscription, I think, applies mostly to the, uh, the, the heavy apps, the Word, the Excel, that kind of stuff. PowerPoint and all that. And you're, yeah, you're limited to five um, installs across five different computers, which can be different platforms. But I don't think OneNote's included in that. I think you can OneNote as much and wherever you want. Hmm. Interesting. Let's give it a try. Well, I haven't been doing anything exciting this week. I can tell you that. I've just been heads down getting ready for next week, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Gary, how about you? Uh, boom, you know, working. I'm still on this kick that I've been on all year, just creating new apps. I, uh, you know, basically from around 1996 to 2016, all I did was just create games all the time. And then suddenly I kind of got into creating courses and, uh, you know, doing other things, some writing and stuff. I took a break from that for like a year and a half. And then suddenly in January, I started making games again and I can't stop. <laughs> so um, after the cribbage game, you know, I released that last week. Uh, I dived right in and decided I was going to make a game and um, really didn't have a plan. And that's unusual for me. Usually I know exactly what I'm going to make and come up with a plan for what it'll look like before I start working and, all of that. And this time I thought, ah, I have this idea for a word game. And I started making a word game. And then I said, boy, the way this word game looks, it looks like a map. Let me throw some islands and towns and trees and stuff on this word game. And I had a map that you played a word game on. So then I threw in a trading game on top of that where you travel around and trade. And then I thought, boy, there's got to be pirates involved here. <laughs> So when the pirates attack you, what happens? Oh, I know you'll have these little cards and then you play this like game of cannon cards with this. And I added that. So you show the pirates flashcards? Well, kind of. They show you a cannon card and you show them your cannon card. and Oh, got it. For some reason, I went in a completely different direction. I thought you had to give up your vowels, which of course would mean that the pirates (laughs) disemboweled you. No, but they do. (laughs) I did make it so that when you travel around... You know, you travel around by forming words in the sea, and, you know, there's got to be an advantage for forming larger words, and my, my thought was, well, you're moving faster, so you have a less chance of encountering pirates. So looking for longer words is very important in the game, because the more you encounter pirates, the more, you know, you're going to lose to them, and it'll slow the game down. So there's that, and then I threw in a treasure hunt, you know, metagame, where as you go around, you're collecting pieces of this treasure map, and eventually you will uh, find the treasure and that ends, ends the game, uh, which could take, I, I've, I've never actually played it through. I've just played it through by using my own cheats at this point. So I don't know how long it takes. I'm thinking at least uh, several hours, maybe several days to play it all the way through, but I've never created a game that's just kind of organically grown 
like that. I had no idea I was going to be doing a trading and a battle card and a treasure hunt game when I started playing around with just some letters on the screen. So it's coming together fast. Maybe by next week I'll be ready to announce that it's uh, in the App Store. Or at least in beta. Yeah, well, I don't know. You know, I don't do beta for all my games. Oh, you don't? Yeah, it takes a lot to do it because you have to set it up. And I say a lot. I mean, like, very little compared to how it used to take. But you still have to set it up, and then you have to get people to beta test. And then even though I'm sitting here, you know, 8 to 12 hours a day working fast on this stuff, once I give it to beta testers, I can't expect them to drop everything and then spend an hour with the game. So then I have to wait days, you know, to get feedback. Uh, and then and you probably want to move faster than that. I, is my I, guess. I do. So like with cribbage, I did a, a short beta test with my Island golf game. I did a pretty long beta test, but like with the nonograms game, I just finished it up and, and, you know, tested it myself and put it up there. And I think I'll I did play that a couple of times. It's, it's interesting. I, I'm going to give it some more time. It works really good on the iPad. Yeah, I have to recommend some of, some of my games really are, I designed them really for the iPad and the iPhone version. It's like, well, if you like playing on a tiny screen, I guess you can. But uh, I really was thinking iPad when I de- designed them. So, um, so yeah. Oh, and the other thing that happened today is uh, I signed the uh, contract extension for my next version of my iPad book. Um, oh, good timing. So give, give yeah. me a copy of that right away, would you? Well, yeah, yeah, well, I have to write it. <laughs> no, you know, it'll be for, I, I write a new one for every version of iOS that comes out. But, you know, the planning stages has, you know, it has to go into budgets and things like that. So this is the only thing I do where I actually have a boss that's above me. <laughs> and everything else I do, my games, MacMost, all that, the book stops with me. But uh, I've been writing computer books since 1995. Um, and since around 99 or 2000 for Pearson for one publisher and pretty much one editor too that's been with me the entire time. Well, it's nice um, to know that some book publishers are still out there plugging along. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, there's a few. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it, and it is weird because I'm not that interested in books anymore. You know, I'm interested in courses, but this book, this series has been really good to me and I'm I'm not, you know, if, if the publisher wants to put out another edition to the 11th edition, um I'm 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 going to say yes, you know, I'll just, I'll do it. I'll update the book for iOS 12 and, um, and you know, so that, but that won't happen until later in the year. Just the contracts and stuff have to be put in sure. place. So lots of planning involved. Yeah. Lots of pl- And the great thing is, is now there's really nothing for me to do until Apple says, here's the beta of the next iOS or whatever. Um, so is a beta really good enough for you? I mean, do they make a lot of last-minute changes when they go to a final release? <laughs> well, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I don't usually do much with the first beta. Um, I install it on an, one of my iPads, and then I um, play with it. And maybe the first two, th- two or three betas, I basically just take time to just learn what the new features are so I don't have to start from scratch when it's time to write. And then if I feel that like beta 4 or 5 is getting pretty, you know, stable it's like oh i think they they've added everything they're going to add then i then i'll start writing but yeah they've you know in the past they've done some things like uh there was one time when they released new pages uh, new versions of pages numbers and keynote with the release of the I, of ios so i had written everything for the beta including lots of references to pages numbers and keynote 
and then they release it and say, oh, and by the way, here's new versions of pages, numbers, of keynotes. Oh, and boy. To, and, then, and then it's basically supposed to be, you know, everything's done on deadline, and then they release the final version, and I just simply send an email saying it looks good. In this case, I say it does look good. Uh, I'm going to have to work pretty much 60 hours out of the next 72 hours and produce Lots of new things for you. Uh, so do you have to do all the screen caps yourself? And all the screen caps. That's what takes a, a long time to do because I mean it's easy to do a screen cap. It takes a sec, but you, you have to set it up. You know? Right. So you think, okay, if I'm doing a tutorial, how to use pages and how to like you write this and you put this and you do a title and then you create a table of contents. You know, and I get a screen capture of that, and then I have to do that screen capture again. I have to kind of set it all up again and put the same text in the same place and then do all the steps and then make sure that everything on the top of the screen and the right side of the screens where it should be, take the screen capture, then go to the next step and take the next. And then take capture. really good notes to tell the, the editor or publisher, this screen cap replaces yes. this one right here. Yes. And I have to do call outs and call outs are, you know, what, you know, number one points to here, number two points to here, et cetera. And some of them have like 10 to 15 call outs pointing for each step what button it is and what thing it is that you're supposed to be pressing or tapping. I could see that take an hour or two just for one I, I wrote cap. custom software. I <laughs> really? The third version. Of, of course you did. <laughs> well, because it was, you know. I, I was, love geeks. <laughs> I was using screen capture software, you know, and, and doing it through a PDF editor and all this stuff. And I decided, you know, if I write some custom software that just did exactly what I wanted. So it, I can get the screen capture and just say, here's where call out one goes, here's two, here's three, here's four, and make adjustments exactly the way I want very quickly. You know, it was a, like a three-day software project. Um, That's not I, too bad, really. Yeah, my publisher's been like, oh, can you, can you make that for other authors? I'm like, no, because it would take me weeks to, you know, put an interface on well, it. Where there was and how, how long ago did you do that? I did that like six years ago. Yeah, so six years ago, some of the tools that exist today didn't exist. Right. Um, you can do what you described, probably not as streamlined as you're yeah. used to because oh, it's yeah. single purpose, yeah. but um, a tool like Snagit, which is what I yeah. use all the time, you could do almost everything you just described. Um, I use Snagit and I use Skitch before, mm -hmm. um, and they do a lot of it. But Snagit's it's got a really nice editor. I'm actually pretty pleased with its editor. Yeah, it, it wasn't quite what I wanted. And then at the end, there's a process where I need to package it all together in a PDF. Right. And I made that a one-click process, <laughs> which, and, which is nice because the problem is that even if, it, okay, so it took me five minutes to do it before, big deal. The problem is it took me five minutes to do it, and if I made one change, right. there's another five minutes. Whereas now I can make a change and click the button again, and there's my PDF. Right. And, uh, and then I can provide that to the publisher and, you know, right. and I was able to customize it for them. Like they said, oh, can you have the, at the top of the page, the figure number? I was like, yeah, no problem. I could do that. <laughs> and one more click. And now I've got a new PDF. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so for all the, all the aspiring writers who are, who are currently saying, oh my gosh, I can't write my own screen capture utility. Yeah. Um, you can get pretty close to what Gary's saying. It's it, clearly, yeah. it's not going to be Gary's specific workflow that we're going to mimic. But um, these days, you know, it'll do things like save to PDF and a few other things. So and I'll link to Snagit on the yeah, show Snagit's page. A good one. Yeah, it's, it's a good tool. There's a, there's a bunch of them out there. Yeah. It just happens to be the one I've used now for probably about as long as you've been doing it, Gary. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Cool. Well, anyway, that's uh, 
enough about all that. What, what's been going on in the news? Well, yesterday morning, Sunday morning, I uh, knew I was going to miss something that I wanted to see because I just got back from travel and, you know, I just really needed to catch up on sleep after, you know, horrible amounts of driving and getting to bed late. And so I got on my computer to watch the replay of the Blue Origin launch on Sunday and was really um, amused to see that they had had to delay the launch a little bit, put in a couple of holds to do a couple of things, and they hadn't launched yet, so I got to watch it live. And Blue Origin, we've talked about SpaceX several times, but Blue Origin is the rocket company owned by a different billionaire, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. And he's also a space geek and, and is throwing his own personal money into making reusable rockets. And it's a very different kind of design from the SpaceX. It's really fat and short. This particular one they're, they're doing right now, New Shepard, is a single stage for low Earth orbit or actually suborbital stuff. And this was their eighth test launch, and they went up something like 350,000 feet right over their you know, launch facility in the wilds of Texas. They have a, you know, something like a million acres in Texas that uh, they're using for their own facility and thing went up and then both pieces came down. It separated a, a crew capsule that had a mannequin in it. And uh, mannequin so, Skywalker. Yes. Yep. That's the name. And so the, uh, when the first stage or the stage ran out of fuel or was done, basically it didn't run out of fuel for the obvious reason I'll mention in a moment. So it popped the capsule off and it kept going until it kind of, you know, and it, they show the basically a speedometer, how fast is this going on the screen? And you can see it getting slower and slower and slower. Then it hits zero, and then it starts picking up again, but it's coming down. So they, they landed not only the rocket itself, but part of the idea is if you're going to be putting humans up in a capsule, you got to land them too and safely. So unlike the usual American splashdown in the ocean and very much like what the Russians are doing, it lands on dirt. And so this capsule comes down and at the very last second. It shoots some rockets to slow it down a little bit. Parachutes take it down to about 18 miles an hour as it's coming down. And then the rockets just give it a quick blast to, to kind of cushion the landing. And uh, everything worked flawlessly. It, both of them landed very nicely and very differently than what SpaceX does. I mean, SpaceX, those rockets come in and they just kind of blast and they're down. And I was really interested to see the Blue Origin kind of hit its rocket at the last minute and kind of basically hovered for a moment to get itself oriented and then went down. And that was really interesting to watch. I'll, I'll put the, uh, the link to the video recap on the show page. But if you didn't see it, it's something to watch. Very, very interesting. Very cool. I, what I heard, Randy, you can clarify if, if I'm misunderstanding here. In the past, um, the Blue Origin uh, test flights, the previous seven, I guess it would be, haven't actually crossed the barrier into quote-unquote space, whereas this one is the one that went the highest. It went across the, um, the generally agreed-upon 100-mile barrier, uh, basically, 100 miles and above is... Actually, I think it's 100 kilometers. 
Is it 100 kilometers? Yeah, 60 any, miles. At any rate, which, whatever that number is, this was the first one to actually cross it. So it actually made another, um, you know, broke another record for, for Blue Origin in the sense that it, it's the highest it ever went. And I don't, you know, I haven't been paying enough attention to actually answer the question on whether they've hit space or not. I'm looking at a... Uh, See, well, I, I read it on the internet. So, so like, for, so New Shepard one, that the first launch of this rocket mm-hmm. hit um, three hundred and seven thousand feet, which is ninety three point five kilometers. So just short of that. Right. There were several technical. That went just just short of the hundred mark, and yeah. that was the first one that went just over it. That might be right. Anyway, I just thought that was fascinating. It's completely arbitrary. I mean, it's you know, sure. pick a number and that that'll be a, a threshold of some sort. I mean, how 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 handy that space starts at a hundred kilometers exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how convenient. I have to recalibrate kilometers to make that work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. But I think it's really neat to have. You know. If you're a billionaire and you're going to throw your money at something, I'd much rather see these guys throw their money at something really useful and cool rather than, you know, yet another yacht. Absolutely. Yeah, these these guys are changing the world for the better. And it's actually, I think it's actually kind of cool to see two of them doing it. It's, you know, three of them, I guess. Well, yeah, two of them. Um, I'm not sure where um, um, Virgin space or virgin galactic falls into this category as well but um to see the two or the three of them actually competing and it's a very friendly competition as i understand it but nonetheless it is competition and it's competition that's driving all of them to uh, to do more and do better well you know nasa for almost forever used united launch alliance as the contractor that put stuff into orbit right sent stuff to the space station all that and guess what? Now that SpaceX is doing all these launches to the space station, uh, ULA has lowered their prices for launches. Imagine that. Yeah, it's amazing that? what you can do when you're the only alternative. So one of the things that Blue Origin is doing is supplying the actual engines to ULA for the next generation of rockets. So they're not necessarily going to be doing rockets going to the space station, but in a way they are because they're providing the engines because you know ULA was I think it was ULA was using uh, Russian rockets and, and engines for, <laughs> for a while right you know that's kind of clever to get some low-cost stuff and you know the Russians get a little you know hard currency but you know that's really not what I want my space agency to depend on right right mm. so I'm, I'm really happy to see this this really going well and uh and the success that they're having, which is really bringing down the costs that, you know, face it, we all pay because we're taxpayers and we're sending stuff to the space station. Cool. Yeah, stuff. And I love, I do love the fact that these, you know, when, when you get billions of dollars, apparently what you want to spend it on a space exploration, which is fantastic. Exactly what I'd be doing if I had billions of dollars. Yeah. And before that, you know, the, some of the really rich guys were, putting money into SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And that was pretty cool too. I mean, they haven't really, you know, found the the big beacon in the sky yet. But here's another way to, you know, kind of expand our vision a little bit from, you know, right in front of us and look a little higher. Yep, definitely. 
Well, speaking of um, at least millionaires, I don't know if he's a billionaire, but the uh, the uh, this year, this week's breach of the week. We'll, we'll put in a Kevin sound effect here <laughs> since he's Kevin's not here with us. Breach, breach, breach of the week. Um, this week's breach of the week, actually, which is, again, I'm just shocked that this turned into a weekly feature. I, I <laughs> never intended for that to be the case. So this week for the uh, the weekly feature that I wish, wish wasn't a weekly feature, it's not something that our listeners are probably going to be affected by that much, but I thought it was fairly interesting. It's the BZOP cryptocurrency. Now, you probably haven't heard of it. It's another yet another kind of Bitcoin, if you want to look at it that way. And it's something that was either owned by or started by John McAfee, the uh, the, the McAfee in McAfee Security, although he's no longer associated with Oh, but, but wouldn't they, like, really know about security? One would hope. One would hope. Would what was interesting anyway. about this one, though, is that if you're an – first of all, if you do know what BZOP is and you are an investor – uh, hopefully you've heard from them because your account information has been compromised. The interesting thing is that it wasn't necessarily something specific to BZOP. It's something that is specific to the database technology that they happen to be using, something called MongoDB. As it turns out, Mongo is a very, very popular database technology, particularly in high-performance and large um, environments at least as I understand it. And it's one of those things where one of the reasons that I've heard about it relatively frequently, say over the last six to 12 months, is that, yeah, it also seems to have a penchant, not for having um, um, security issues other than what for the longest time was the default installation was not secure. And unfortunately, what happened is a lot of people would start using MongoDB, say, for the first time without the experience or without security in mind, and not realize just how insecure or unsecure the the, the default installation really was. My assumption here is that that's kind of sort of what happened. They picked a really good database technology, and they just didn't realize or forgot or neglected to take the extra steps that are required to secure a MongoDB database. Like putting a password on it? I'm not sure. I actually don't have a good sense for exactly what the breach issue is, what the, what the, ins, what the insecurity is. And I mention it this week because it's very similar to what I was mentioning last week, where we have a lot of cases of data leakage because of people placing information into Amazon S3 storage buckets. Right. Again, for the longest time, their default, or it was very easy to create um, a potentially publicly viewable Amazon S3 storage bucket without really realizing it. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, I know that Amazon has increased the visibility of your security when you log into their interface. So if you're looking at things on any regular basis, it should at least be a little bit clearer as to what is and what is not public. And I know that Mongo has over time been increasing the security ramification of the security configuration of their default installations. But that doesn't mean that everybody that's using these technologies could just sit back and assume it's all going to be good. If you want security, if you're doing something with, you know, that should be secure, say trading cryptocurrency, 
<laughs> um, you really, really, really want to have security baked in and baked in hard from the very beginning. And that typically means you don't just assign it to a random engineer on your team. Security isn't one of those things that you could just pick up over a weekend. You need to have people who really understand security and understand it and bake it in from the beginning. Like I said, especially when you're doing something like dealing with people's money. So I just thought that was an interesting kind of breach this week, um, just for the heck of it. The breach included, and this is from a, uh, a Bitcoinist.com article that, of course, we will link to, but the sensitive information exposed by the breach include full names, wallet information, and even scanned photos of ID documents, which that, I just love. That's the one that raised my eyebrow. Yeah, that one. That one cried, and more than 25,000 investors were affected by the leak. Um, it just it just blows me away. I understand that that kind of information is required. I mean, I've had to send scans of my driver's license to uh, uh, to organizations in the past to prove that I am who I who I say I am. But uh, my assumption is that they're doing the right thing and they're not going to just sort of hand that out to anybody that asks. And apparently, that was not necessarily the case here. Well, somebody so, has to say it. Yeah. Mongo just a pawn in Game of Life. Oh yeah, well. Thank you for that one. Um, the, the, so the, the point here, though, is that it's often, while we, we tend to point at individual companies for specific breaches, sometimes the breach is a little bit more systemic. Uh, what I would hope that people take away from this, the developers that, that are developing software take away from this, is that when you're using software that is common, like Mongo, like Amazon S3, or as so many of us do, WordPress, because WordPress is another big target, that we take those extra steps. You're all responsible for taking those extra steps to make sure that what you're providing to your customers, to your clients, to your visitors is appropriately secure for what it is, for whatever functionality it is you are providing them. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting and ongoing issue. And it's like I said, you'll hear Mongo again, because this isn't the first time we've heard about it already. And you know there's going to be other sites using these databases that aren't secure because that was the default. And I'm hoping, like I said, I'm just hoping that they're paying attention and saying, whoops, hey, we're, look, we're using Mongo too. I wonder if, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Do we so have I, a security have, expert on the staff? I have a friend here who works for a, a very, very large um, data processing organization whose name you would recognize, but I cannot say. They actually use Mongo internally um, for some just some incredibly massive stuff. But they've got it, I don't want to say air-gapped, but they've got it firewalled in such a way that it doesn't matter. You just can't get there from here, where here is the internet and there is their database. They understand what it means to be secure, and that's the way it needs to be. Well, you know, the biggest database I can think of that we all use every day is Facebook. And I've been amazed how rapidly you can get anything you want on Facebook. Hmm. Is this something that Facebook would use? I, I would think that Facebook would be pretty secure. I don't know what they use. There are actually other database technologies, and I don't even know. Gary, you might be more familiar with this than I am. There's one out there called, I think it's Hadoop. Have you heard of that one before? I haven't even heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, and what it is, it's a different approach to database processing that actually what they call shards the database. And they, they basically slice the database into a different into different pieces uh, spread out across multiple machines. I believe it's what Google uses. That's the biggest database you're using, by the way, Google. Mm, good point. Um, yeah. 
And, and I suspect, and I know that they use this technology or at least a variant of this technology on their back end, but what Facebook is using, I have no, no clue. Yeah, I know that, I mean, you know, both Facebook and Twitter kind of ushered in, you know, whole new types of databases. I, I remember reading particularly about Twitter, you know, what a massive database problem it was to do something like Twitter at the time because this idea that I could follow, you know, 300 people that I just want to be on my feed out of millions or you know, hundreds of millions of people on Twitter and then view my feed and, you know, and then other, and those hundreds of millions of people could actually have their people that they follow and view their feed. It's just a huge thing. I mean, it's not as simple as saying, okay, Gary wants to know what's new on Twitter. Uh, he's following these 300 people, query the database, find out, you know, what these 300 people have tweeted in the last uh, few hours and put that in a list and display it on the screen. It, that is tough to do, and it's particularly tough to do when you have a million of those requests coming in every minute. Um, yeah. and or every second. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, and it's, and it's, a, it's, you know, so, you know, I post something to Twitter, and then it has to go out, and you somehow, you know, people who are have Twitter active, either mobile app or, um, you know, the web or whatever, have to see that there's a new tweet that came out. You know, it's, it was a whole big issue, and it was it pretty much went counter to how databases had worked previous to all of that. Um, you know, when things were much simpler, you need data. Okay, tell me what data you need. I'll go out and get it. And I'll bring it back to you. It's like no, that's tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that. Well, I mean, I'll do it, but it's it's doing it on a massive scale like that where it, there isn't a pattern to it, like. You know, there isn't like a, oh, you want your record. Okay, here's all your information. You know, no, this could be information spread out throughout the database, you know, in every nook and cranny, and it's all got to be compiled and sent back to you instantly. It, it's tough. So I can't imagine, I, I, I'd be surprised if Facebook was using something that anybody else has. I'd imagine they'd have their own. Well, I mean, yeah, you can certainly assume that the large companies like Facebook and Google and so forth, even if they start with something, Mm-hmm. You know, that that's say open source or whatever. Um, yeah, they're going to tweak the heck out of it for their specific implementation. And by, and by that, I mean, you know, what their specific database looks like, what their specific, uh, um, uh, you know, hardware looks like even, because that's the level of tweaking I would expect them to be, to be doing. Yeah. But, uh, but you're right. They're definitely looking at data differently. And it's, it's, you know, even from a geeky point of view, I mean, I, I understand databases at the SQL level, the SQL level, I, I know how to make. I know I know how to make those dance, but when they start looking at these other kinds of things, this other way of looking at data, uh, that's when my eyes start to cross. It's pretty amazing what they can pull off. Data science, yep, it really is. So, Randy, yes, you stayed in some hotels over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm about to. I'm getting nervous. Tell me why. Yeah, I found this article on Gizmodo that, uh, you know, there's different kinds of keys for hotel rooms. The older style of electronic lock is you slid a credit card-like thing into a slot in the door that had, you know, like a mag strip on it, like a credit card. The new thing or the newer thing is an RFID tag. They've gotten cheap enough that you can just wave the key in front of the door and you hear the click and you're in. So hackers have designed a quote-unquote master key to unlock any 
door in the hotel. And they don't have to get hold of like a maid's key to clone that. Pretty much if you can get any key that has the base code in it, they can make a master key for the entire hotel. And so much so that they can use an expired key or they can just get on the elevator and if somebody has a key in their back pocket and they can get close enough and it, I don't think it's very close at all, they can just pick it up out of you know some guest's pocket and instantly have access to any room in the hotel. So what made me nervous in reading this article uh, is not this ability to create a master key from anything because um, the actual technique for doing that. The company that discovered this was F-Secure, one of the security companies that we hear of from time to time. Right. And they're helping the hotels to increase their security. Actually, the the software vendors who provide the hotels with this technology. They have not released the, the code that makes this happen. They're working with the hotels directly, but they do not plan to say, this is how we did it. Now, granted, hackers will say, well, gosh, there's a way to do it, so we're going to figure out how to do it too. But actually, that doesn't worry me as much. What worried me about the article uh, was just the casual way that they um, discussed the apparent fact that it's trivial to clone a room key and that it's trivial to clone, say, the housekeeping person's key, which for all intents and purposes, is pretty close to a master key. Um, When you think about it, if it's that easy, and literally, like you were saying, they could just get close enough to these people or get close enough to someone with a key, um, and they they can clone the key from a distance. That's the part that, to me, deserves more press. (laughs) Because that's the part that seems to be something that, oh, yeah, this happens, this can happen, and it can happen, and there's no talk about... How do we prevent that from happening? What do we do to stop that leak? You know, how do we put our finger in that hole in the dike? Well, the thing that actually raised my eyebrow isn't hotels. It's all the government installations and high security places. When I was at JPL, I had one of these keys that I waved in front of a reader by the door to get in. Right. And, you know, and that's bypassing the security guard that was at the front door. So, you know, this, this goes back 20 years that I was using that. So these things are fairly ubiquitous. They're in a lot of places. And maybe some of them are more secure than what the hotels are using. I don't know. But I would hope know, so. it, it's something to think about for sure. It's funny because if, you know, if they're using NFC, which I think a lot of them were, and I think that is one of the differences between the technologies that you and I both experienced both at, at JPL and at Microsoft with these um, uh, cards that we would just wave at a reader in front of the door. Uh, those were probably a unique technology. I remember actually seeing the uh, the outline of the little wire loop antenna in the card if you pushed on it hard enough. Right. But um, what they're using now, I think, is a variant of NFC, which is a pretty standard technology that's even in my phone. Now, on one hand, um, you know, I use NFC to pay. I paid at the grocery store this afternoon, right? I tapped my phone and it just worked. It's you know, Google Pay uses it, Apple Pay uses it, all those kinds of things work. I understand that it's possible your phone could end up being your room key. And on one hand, I kind of look forward to that. I I like the idea of doing that. I don't want to have to carry another key around. I don't want to have another key that I could lose and then have to go embarrassing to the front desk, you know, those kinds of things. Um, But on the other hand, 
the fact that it's a standard technology is, I wonder if that's part of what's behind some of this um, uh, ubiquitous vulnerability. Well, I think one of the advantages of having it on our phone is that they can't just read it. You know, you would, you would probably bring up your phone and bring up your, the app, your Hilton or Marriott app. And just like when you pay, you have to do something to authenticate, you know, touch ID, face ID, you know, your passcode. And so somebody on the elevator, your phone's not going to respond to anything they do. You have to get to your door and then you bring up the app and you say, unlock my door for me. Um, Airbnb already does. I don't think they use NFC in any way. I think they, they're just doing it over the internet where you use your app and say, internet of things kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Unlock, unlock the door. And then the, you know, it goes, bounces all the way to the internet, all the way back to this lock, um, which is another way to do it. You know, the, the thing about, you know, the RFID is, you know, that you can, it can basically just send a signal. So it's not really a smart device. It's a dumb device. It just echoes, you know, this, this signal back. Um, and I know people complain about them being in passports because they're in passports, but then the, the way that passports are a little more secure is that, if somebody were to read, you know, br- brush by you at the airport, read the, uh, you know, information com- coming out of your passport, um, and then try to use that at customs or whatever, th- it would bring up a record on the screen of, you know, immigration or customs that doesn't match whatever they've got on their passport. Right. Uh, so they can, you know, they, that's why they do the visual check there. So they don't know who, you know, who, who you are and what your name is and all that. And they'd have a passport that's wrong, but with a room key, none, there's nobody at the door to confirm right. who you are. Now I'm not worried at all about this because I've, I always assume that any hotel I'm at that there there's easy ways. I mean, you know, of housekeeping and the hotel managers and assistant managers and, you know, rest of the staff can get in. Um, I never assume that much security at any hotel I stay at. Uh, I've always been lazy. I mean, obviously it depends on where I'm staying, but in general, if I'm in a quote unquote good enough hotel, I'm pretty lazy and I've been known to, you know, leave my laptop running on the desk while I go out to dinner or, or, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah. I always shut mine down. And if I'm going to be gone for a while, I'm looking for that hotel safe. That's in most rooms. But on the other hand, occasionally I'll check into a hotel and oh, good! There's a safe, and it's locked. So I'll call, you know, the front desk, and they say, "Okay, we'll send security up," and they open it in three seconds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know that there's a way to open the safe. There just is, um, and regardless of whatever code you might choose for it, that safe is openable. Yep. Uh, I if if I do anything res- with respect to security on my laptop, I will um, put it in my suitcase um, in a particular way, you know, zip up the suitcase in a particular way so that I can at least detect whether or not anything's been tampered with while I was out. Yeah. I do that kind of thing. And I always shut mine down. So you have to have a password to right. do anything with it. So yeah. that yeah. doesn't help if somebody steals it though. Yeah, exactly. Well, d- well it does because well, they, it slows them down. They won't, they won't get your data. And if you're cloud-based like I am, it's just a matter of picking up a new, <laughs> a new machine if you need it before you, your trip is over. Right. Yeah. It's never happened to me, but it does, you know, protect you at the at the airport and on the in your and your, you know, your bags while you're moving around and at the hotel room and all of that. As long as it's uh, in, an encrypted drive, and 
you know, you go through, you have to go through the extra steps of changing some passwords, maybe just to be extra safe. But, uh, but yeah, I always, I always just assume if, you know, there's really a lot of access to your hotel room. So somebody doing this cloak and dagger stuff with RFID tags and all that, it's like, is that, how much harder is that than finding the lowest paid person at the hotel that has access to keys and slipping them some money? Well, there's that, but there's also, you know, how, how big of a target are you really? Yeah. So. Yeah. Cause they, cause yeah, you think about that They're, I mean, if somebody puts a target, you, they're going to get your stuff, but then I don't know why, you know, most right. people, 99.9% .9 of us aren't going to be targeted for anything. Um, and yeah, so it's, I don't know. It, it just, it's, uh, you know, it's like the, the credit card at the restaurant syndrome, you know, if it's that easy to, you know, when, when a server comes over, who's getting paid less than minimum wage, because that's how it is in the United States, uh, you know, it just says, you know, you just hand their credit card, your credit card to them and they disappear with it for minutes. Um, and why would you bother trying to do some elaborate cloak and dagger hacker scheme to try to steal credit cards? Well, and to be fair, the one, t I mean, I think we've all had our credit cards compromised, you know, at least a few times over the years. Sure. Oh yeah. One of the times I can directly point to, yep. The only time I used it was at this specific restaurant in yep. this specific location. And it happened immediately after that. And yes, it was a, a takeaway, um, a takeaway scenario, which is one of the reasons that I really like, um, not just um, NFC um, as some, one of the approaches, but a lot of restaurants now and a lot of other places are moving to uh, approaches where they bring the machine to you. And that just makes so much more sense that way. But yeah, that's I, I saw that in Canada and I really like yeah, that. That's I didn't really need to do that most here. Places, yep. Except the U.S. And of we course. were supposed to do what, you know, uh, April was the end, supposed to be the end of signatures for American Express, MasterCard, and Visa. Right. Um, they they no longer require signatures. I right. have yet to see any change. So there's two things going on. One is I think the date wasn't quite as early as we thought it was. I suspect that tomorrow we're recording at the last day of April. So I think tomorrow being the first day of May might be the kickover. The yeah. other, though, is that um, what I don't know, having been a retailer, and I know, Gary, you've been in, this, in these shoes. Yeah. Um, having been a retailer, you've got equipment and that equipment expects to behave a certain way according to the rules that were in place or to whatever programming were in place um, at the time the, the equipment was, was uh, put in place. It's possible that a lot of companies, a lot of, a lot of stores are facing an equipment upgrade in order to make this happen. And you know that's not going to happen fast. No. Just because especially for small business, it just the sunk cost is just so high to make that kind of stuff happen as compared with all the other fires they're fighting every day. So, so yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't surprise me. I expect, I'm hoping that like at the grocery store, great, make it go away because they should be able to just sort of blanket, you know, do the thing. But um, And my grocery store has been doing it for months, if not longer, that if it's under 50 bucks, you don't have to sign. And that's actually been a credit card thing. And it's only some credit cards, whatever credit card you were using at the time. But that's been around for a while. It's the limit. It's removing that limit that right. is the most recent change. So anyway, speaking of limits and targets, Gary, somebody had their eye on a phone company. Well, yeah, it looks like uh, we may finally get um, T-Mobile joining up forces of someone else you know at&t tried to buy t-mobile not too long ago and it wasn't allowed 
because uh, it would make too big of an monopoly. But it looks like uh, finally T-Mobile and Sprint may be getting together. It's a big story uh, in the tech And world they've tried world. to do that before. They've, tr- they've tried. This really, if you look at it, they call it a merger. Uh, the first, every time I hear about companies I know something about, and they say there's a merger, I try to figure out, is it really a merger? And this seems to be T-Mobile buying Sprint because it's, it's the new company would be called T-Mobile. The heads of T-Mobile will be running the company, um, and the shareholders of T-Mobile will be majority control. It's, so it's really... It's kind of like a politician leaving his job to spend more time with his family. You know there's something else going on. Sprint is... Uh, <laughs> sp- 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 yeah, Sprint's going away, T-Mobile. and, and Spend it would, more time with their family, exactly. Yeah. Spend more time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so, you know, it, it, it makes sense in that it would create three companies of fairly equal size dominating the U.S. market. So... Uh, Verizon, AT&T, and this new T-Mobile would be pretty close to even thirds. You know, Verizon would be slightly ahead, and T-Mobile will still be lagging slightly behind, but it'll be pretty close, um, which will be nice. A lot of times these industries don't finally quiet down until there's only two. But in this case, there's been so much resistance at four that maybe three is the, the magic number that we can move forward with. The interesting thing is, is that uh, between T-Mobile and Sprint, they have a lot of branded services or companies that use their bandwidth, and they call it something else, uh, like Boost, for instance, and there are a few others. What was that one that you said, Randy? Uh, Citizen Cellular, which specializes in retired people. Yeah. And there's a bunch of these that either either T-Mobile or Sprint, you know, if you're, if you're buying this service, what you're really getting, the towers you're really hitting and the network you're really on is either a T-Mobile one or a Sprint one. Well, so, uh, and I'll, I'll back you up there because AT&T and Verizon also sell to these, the, the, these companies are called MVNOs, yeah. Mobile Virtual Network Operators. And, you know, Google is one of the, the uh, I can't think of the name of the Google uh, cellular service that you, that came out, you know, it was a big deal for a while, a year or two ago, that, hey, we're going to go into this. And and all four of these companies sell some of their capacity to these MVNOs. Yeah, and I have to wonder sometimes if it's, you know, are these smaller companies, is it a tight relationship where if you're dealing with, for example, Boost or Virgin Mobile, are you dealing only with Sprint because Sprint owns them or Sprint has an exclusive or whatever? I or, think the MVNO has to do the, the customer service for them. Sure, that, which is fine. But Or are these smaller companies just sort of saying, okay, who's going to sell us bandwidth today? Who's going to give us the best deal on bandwidth today? I don't today? think it's that because then, then everybody, myself included, would jump to these guys. Because the problem I'm always running into is going to someplace and – I don't have AT&T service, but somebody else that I'm with has Verizon service. I'm like, ah, and then, they, and then they are in the opposite situation when we're in another location. So if there was some company that could access multiple ones, that they, it would be ideal. That's not quite what I meant. I was thinking more on the business relationship side where, you know, is, is Boost required contractually or because of ownership issues to uh, deal only with one of the big three? Or big oh, I, I, I see. Well, probably it's probably. Whereas can they every year or so negotiate yeah. a new contract with one of those big companies? I don't know. I, I don't know how it works. It does sound from the, from the press releases, from the news reports, that um, 
these two, Sprint and T-Mobile, uh, certainly handled a majority of the very familiar companies that we we think of as the uh, the small the small carriers. Well, and yeah. a, a lot of the uh, MVNOs work with all four: AT and T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon. Uh, Best seller: Boom Mobile, Cell Nuvo, Red Packet Mobile, Straight Talk, which is I think the one out of uh, Walmart. Uh, so a lot of these different companies have relationships with more than one or all four. So it, it's, it is a, it, it's an interesting market that, that um, you kind of wonder how it all really works. Yeah. Yeah. And there's gotta be some way to make these by doing that, you know, like I said, not be better than sticking with just one, you know, else everybody would, nobody would, you know, we wouldn't even know the names of the four big companies now because they would just be the, you Resellers. know, yeah. like the Cisco's, you know, the, behind now, the scenes. Some of it is that Verizon and I think Sprint use CDMA and yeah. AT&T and I think T-Mobile use GSM, if, if I'm not mistaken. Right. It's your different, you know, encoding standards, not necessarily different uh, frequency ranges, but the way they encode the digital voice and all that. And I believe that that might not be true anymore for LTE. I think LTE is its own thing. I but think you might be right about that. Yeah, I think I think the whole CDMA versus GSM kind of starts to decrease in importance once you get into 4G. And of course, they're all talking about 5G. You know, that's exactly. Yeah, that's, with this is that, that's one of the lines that I saw is that this is supposedly going to help 5G happen a little sooner. Okay, great. You know. Yeah, that that will be nice, and I'd love it if yeah we could get more universal. It kind of is weird because uh, you travel to other countries, and sometimes you know I know people that have CDMA sometimes have big issues, or in the past have had big issues going to Europe, right? And or they well, have GSM. Okay. So jumping ahead, because yeah. one of the things I was going to talk about as what I'm doing next week is well tomorrow I'm getting on an airplane and I'll be in Europe. Um, I did this uh, a year and a half ago. And my phone, uh, which is a Verizon, I have Verizon as my carrier, um, it just works. I mean, I granted, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a, number, a monetary component, <laughs> right, um, to, to, to make that happen. But it's surprisingly small and it just works. I mean, while I'm in Europe, while I'm in the Netherlands specifically, um, if you call my mobile number here in the U.S., my phone will ring a quarter of the way around the planet. And I think that that's, that's cool. I'll be calling you for tech support tomorrow. Yeah. Thanks. I also, <laughs> um, the, but the interesting thing is though, that that's also part of what makes me, uh, leads me to believe that the whole CDMA thing is less of an issue than it used to be because Europe was GSM and for Verizon yeah, period. for a very long time, that was a big issue because Verizon, as you said, was CDMA. Um, but my Verizon phone is LTE and it just worked. And, you know, I ran into a similar type of situation where J- Japan supposed to be CDMA. And I went to Japan in 2014. I didn't bother to look at that. It just didn't occur to me. And I have a GSM AT&T phone. Right. Went over there. Phone worked fine. You know, now I was never without service the whole time. Had my international plan. Used it. No problem. I came back and I went, you know, I went back to Japan in 2017 and the friend who I was traveling with said, oh, you know, we're going to have trouble with our phones because it's CDMA there. And I'm like, no. And I looked online and there were tons of people posting that, yeah, you cannot use GSM phones in Japan. 
were CDMA only. And some of those were very old posts, but some of them were new posts. And I started looking through these, and of course, none of them were for people that actually were had been to Japan. <laughs> they were just people <laughs> that said, hey, here I know this. I know that according to this information, Japan CDMA, I know that AT&T is GSM. Therefore, your phone will not work when you're in Japan. But no, I haven't tested it because I haven't been to Japan. I'm like, well, I have in 2014. I didn't have any problem. And sure enough, when I went in 2017, I didn't have any problem either. So I think there's a lot of information out there that's old, pre-LTE, like you said. Um, Or just speculation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, but, you know, in general, you could, I mean, like AT&T told me, you know, on their site, Japan was one of the countries that my phone should work in. And they were right. Work just fine. What a concept. Yep. So it should be interesting. T-Mobile buying Sprint 2019, the deal should complete. You know, of course, they're going to look at it. The U.S. government's going to look at it closely. It's interesting because T-Mobile is owned by a German telephone, you know, huge corporation. Um, Sprint's owned by SoftBank. uh, And... The new company will be owned a little bit by lots of different things. Um, so uh, so I have to see what happens. But hopefully, you know, people like love T-Mobile because of the service. You know, usually gets pretty good service. And I was a T-Mobile customer before the iPhone came out. I was a T-Mobile customer back when they were called VoiceStream. Yeah, no, I started with VoiceStream too. I had, I had a sidekick. Remember the sidekicks? Yeah. I had a sidekick with VoiceStream. and then, because... Uh, of course, T-Mobile is headquartered out here in the Seattle area, and uh, the uh, their CEO Jean Legere is uh, quite the character. Yes, so, he is. Uh, as you can imagine, there's been a fair amount of uh, of press over this, so it'll be interesting to see how it all how it all shakes out over the next few weeks. Yeah. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, competition is good. It's a good thing. That's for sure. So we're coming in on an hour um, next week. Well, I kind of gave myself, you know, what I'm doing away um, tomorrow. I'm getting on a jet plane and heading over to the Netherlands to visit some relatives and do a little bit of actual genealogy research. It just, it's funny. I was helping someone else who's traveling um, in a couple of weeks who hasn't traveled since before 9-11. She hasn't done air travel since before 9-11. Huh. And, um, you know, so of course it was a lot of, okay, you know, security does this and this is, this is how you can use your smartphone as your boarding pass and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, you know, a lot of, a lot of things have changed in the last, um, you know, 17, 18 years, but, um, it just reminds me of how freaking amazing it is, um, that we can travel the way we travel at all. Um, you know, the fact that this afternoon I checked in and, uh, you know, via my phone. Actually, no, I did do it. I had to use my computer because since it's an international flight, they needed my passport number. And that was easier to type in that way. Um, you know, the fact that you get But in, you had a choice. You have a choice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was a choice on my part. I prefer typing on a real keyboard for something as important as my And passport. I think last time I traveled internationally, the app I, it was United. The app actually said, okay, take a picture of your smartphone, I mean, of your passport. And I showed the data page and it finally focused in and clicked and said, okay, you're good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I took, I actually did do a scan of my passport for safety reasons. Um, it's one of those things where. Good plan. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where if you lose your passport, it's not a replacement for your passport, but it helps grease the skids for getting that replacement. 
Um, but just the fact that you can get in a tin can and fly for nine hours and be on another continent and then, you know, like nine time zones over, um, the fact that there's a pretty good chance I'll be online for most of that flight is just blows my mind. Um, there's, I know that there's a dead zone, um, as we're crossing at the very top of the curve in Northern Canada and, uh, in Greenland between satellite footprints. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Um, and the fact that once I get there, uh, I'm renting a car like I did last time I was there. I will fire up Google maps. I will say, here's where I want to go. And it will tell me how to get there and it will be right. I mean, it will tell me exactly where to go. It will tell me, (laughs) it will mispronounce the names of the locations because of course my, phone is configured for English. It, it mispronounces things in the United States too, though. Well, usually things that are not originally in English, though. Um, it'll mispronounce many of the Indian names out here. It'll mispronounce, uh, I'm sure, some of the Spanish names uh, further south of here. Well, I was told to take I-80 toward Renault. <laughs> That's pretty Not cool. Reno. I'm surprised. Um, but, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, and even just beforehand, you know, going out there onto Google Maps and getting onto Street View and taking a look at, okay, what's it going to look like when I get there? Uh, you know, so that I see the landmarks, so that I know the landmarks, what to expect when I get there. The fact that I'll get real-time traffic information in a completely different country, knowing which, I mean, it's just, it just amazes me. The, the I know this sounds like an old guy, just sort of not quite, you know, taking what I'm sure a lot of quote unquote, these kids today would take for granted, but it's well, just, they do, but you know, we're, we're looking at this from a technical standpoint and just the, you know, the loop back the database interaction that we're doing oh, and absolutely. finding traffic. It's just incredible. Yep. So, and while I'm in Holland, if there's something I need on my computer at home, <laughs> I can get it, you know, um, as long as I leave the machine running at home, which I typically do anyway. I mean, it's just, or and as of, um, uh, you weren't here last week, uh, Randy, but I mentioned that I did listen, I have though. installed um, a couple of um, Internet of Things light switches in my yeah. bedroom, which are Alexa enabled. So now we can tell Alexa to turn the lights on and off. I don't know why I would, but the fact that I can turn off my bedroom light from Holland is actually kind of cool. Yeah, it is. It reminds me of a of an episode of I think it was the Big Bang Theory where they were getting all excited about that because there were random people turning off their you know, in China turning on turning off and on the lights in their room. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just it's fun, it's exciting. I look forward to this kind of stuff. It's it's amazing what we can do, um, and the fact that you know we just get on a get like I said, get into a tin can, and a few hours later get off on another on another continent is is amazing. Well, I, I did um, listen last week, and you didn't name her, and you didn't say where she was going, but you, you were talking about my wife traveling, and she is currently walking the Camino de Santiago. She's walking right. from France to southern Spain, yeah. and 500 miles. Yeah, she decided she wanted to go for a walk. She just decided to do it on a different continent. Exactly. kind of cool. <laughs> but the neat thing is, so I set it up so that she would, any, any picture she takes, as soon as she's in Wi-Fi, it uploads her pictures to Dropbox, and then I'm scraping them out so she can clear out her phone and have plenty of room to take more pictures. Right. In the meanwhile, I can text her. So as long as she's in Wi-Fi, because we're not doing the, um, you know, the the roaming on the cellular, because you know even at 
five or 10 bucks a day. Right. Not too bad unless you're talking about 40 days. Right. Yeah. And my trip is only going to be like, what, six days, five days t- tops. So I'll be paying that right. $5 a day for a very short period of time. But, you know, Wi-Fi is pretty ubiquitous. Even these little hostels she's staying at have Wi-Fi most of the time. It may not right. be real fast, but the pictures upload to Dropbox and then I grab them and I'm able to text her. So I'm often able to talk to her with Skype or WhatsApp. I've noticed it's amazing. She, she's posted some Facebook live videos, which I thought, yeah, was, that's pretty cool. So neat stuff. I it mean, is, technology it and it's not costing us a penny in roaming. It's just the internet, man. Yep. Yep. It's a cool thing. So what are you up to? Me? Yeah, you. I have to start writing a speech. I uh, just got my invitation to speak at the Mensa National Convention, which is in Indianapolis this year. They do it over 4th of July. And uh, Kit and I are both going to uh, be giving speeches there. We, we got our invitations over the weekend. And so I got, uh, I've got to figure out what I'm going to talk about and start writing. So is it intimidating to talk to a group like Mensa? No, I love talking to Mensa because I, I do a lot of humor. And you know what? They laugh instantly at every joke. You don't have to explain a thing to them. <laughs> I love that. Cool. Very cool. I hope it goes well. Yep. And I'm going to be, be driving on this one so I can take books. And, you know, most authors, they sell their books in the back of the room. Now I'm giving my books to the, uh, to the sure. audience. Everybody gets at least one book. Cool. Very cool. It'll be fun. Yeah. Gary, you got got anything planned for this week? I already talked about kind of that. I'll I'll have some more stuff to talk about next week, though. I've got some exciting stuff planned for later in May, but nothing exciting this week. Okay. Well, cool. Well, let's wrap it up then. Yep. So the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh22. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH podcast. And hey, now that I have an iOS product, I can see the ratings and reviews on iTunes. The good news is there are six five-star ratings for this show. The bad news is there's a lot more of you that listen every week. If you can pop a rating in iTunes for the show, we'd appreciate it. And if you'd like to write a quick review, all the better. That's the way people find us. So please do help spread the word. There are only three reviews right now. And thanks to you, to the six of you who have posted. We appreciate your listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye.